All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so this morning, we're going to be in the books of Esther. No, yes, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. It's like, we're not starting with Esther, so why did I say Esther first? Uh, so if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ezra. That's where we're going to start. Um, so the first two books that we're going to be looking at this morning um, are going to tell us about the Jews' return to Jerusalem from exile. Uh, just as God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, and yet, what we're going to see in those books is that something is, is still missing. Uh, things just don't seem to be as glorious as uh, the prophets had predicted for the people. Uh, so where are the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah spoke about? Uh, why don't the people have new hearts uh, the way Jeremiah predicted they would? Uh, where's that glorious, magnificent temple uh, that Ezekiel saw? Uh, and then further, why hasn't everyone um, come back? That's a key question uh, that uh, we're going to think about in the book of Esther. Uh, and the, the people that we meet in Esther are actually still in uh, a foreign land. Um, so after this, ex this, uh, this exile, some things are just as predicted and promised uh, as the prophets uh, had said. But many of God's promises uh, have yet to be fulfilled uh, in, in the three books that we're going to look at today. Um, and that's the issue, that's some of the issue that these books are going to wrestle and grapple with. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Ezra and Nehemiah. Father, we praise you for your word. Uh, we praise you for the way that uh, it's, it's so connected, uh, the ways it reveals uh, your hand, not just moving through the pages of scripture, but through uh, the, uh, the corridors of time and history. Uh, God, you are sovereign. Uh, you are moving, uh, even when we can't see it, even when we don't know it, and these books uh, will reveal that to us. And so, Father, we pray as we look at these, these three books today, we'd be comforted uh, and find great confidence uh, in your, your providential hand and your goodness and your sovereignty uh, to preserve your people and to provide a king for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we're going to take on Esther at the end of class. Um, so Ezra and Nehemiah, originally, uh, they would have constituted one book, uh, so we're going to treat them uh, that way today. So we're going to kind of just treat Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, look at both of them together. Uh, many think it was the priest Ezra uh, who assembled Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and together both books cover about 100 years of Israel's history. Uh, so 539 B.C. to 433 B.C., that's the, uh, the time range that we're in. The Jews are beginning their return to Jerusalem. Uh, and then Ezra's first six chapters tell the story uh, of the first wave of Israel's exiles who are granted permission uh, by the Persian king Cyrus to return to Judah uh, and rebuild the temple in the years 539 to 516 B.C. Uh, so the first six chapters are going to cover that range. And then the last four chapters tell the story of the second wave uh, who returned nearly 60 years later with Ezra, uh, who the new king of Persia commissions to reinstitute God's law uh, among the people. And then Nehemiah is going to focus on both waves returning uh, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Ezra uh, is kind of focusing on the temple, the law, and then Nehemiah is going to focus on rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Um, so Ezra Nehemiah really is a story of kind of renewed hope uh, for the people of Judah. Uh, it's important to remember this historical context for, um, for Ezra Nehemiah. The southern kingdom of Judah uh, had been exiled in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire marched into Jerusalem, destroyed it, uh, tearing down the walls, ransacking the temple, uh, burning it to the ground, carrying tens of thousands of Jews away as captives to Babylon. And then about 50 years later, uh, the Babylonian Empire itself actually, would have, uh, actually falls to Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire. Uh, and then Cyrus begins to kind of unwittingly uh, fulfill earlier Old Testament prophecies as he permits God's people uh, to return to the land uh, thus ending the 70 years of exile uh, that Jeremiah would have prophesied about in Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. Lots of Old Testament prophecies that we could go back and look at today if we had the time. 
Um, I'll, I'll kind of just throw some of those at you here a little bit later. Be good for you to jot those down. Look at them, look at them later today. Um, so Ezra picks up the story uh, kind of right on the heels of that, this historical context. Uh, and that's actually where he starts the book. Um, so if you turn to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he gives us this historical context uh, that's necessary. So remember the Jews had been in exile for 70 years, and now we read, read this in the first four verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Uh, so you can imagine uh, that this is a time of real excitement and hope for, uh, for God's people. Uh, this, this pagan king is, uh, is allowing them to return to their land uh, and worship God. Um, actually, many people think that Psalm 126 was written during this time, uh, so that would be a good one to jot down. Uh, look at later, talks of just about the Lord's goodness uh, to his people for allowing them uh, to return to Zion. So Psalm, 1, Psalm 126. Um, so after, after the trauma um, of the exile, uh, the people are reminded that God is still, still faithful to his age-old promises. Um, the nation's been kind of resurrected, so to speak, and the Mosaic Covenant has been reestablished among the people. Um, but those glorious realities of the new covenant, uh, they're not being realized yet in, uh, and really in the hearts of the people. Uh, and God's final kingdom is still in the future. There's a greater work uh, still to come. Um, so we can summarize uh, Ezra and Nehemiah kind of like this. You sh- should be able to see that on your handout um, right, there on the, right there on the front. Um, God proves his covenant commitments by restoring his people, the temple, true worship in Jerusalem, but an even greater, restora- re- a rest- a greater restoration project uh, awaits. So in one sense, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's really about all this restorative work that's happening, um, physical restoration of the land, um, and yet it's going to point to an even greater restoration uh, project that's, that's still to come. So the return from exile was, was really exciting, uh, but it wasn't all that it was expected to be uh, for the people. Uh, we're back in the land now, um, but we're not in the new heavens and the new earth uh, that Isaiah uh, would have seen. Instead, we get kind of an exile in the land. They're in the land, but they're still kind of spiritually exiled. Uh, that's kind of what we saw last week in uh, the book of Chronicles. Um, some people uh, seem to have new hearts, but not everyone. Uh, and we have a new temple, but it's not the picture of glory uh, that Ezekiel saw. And it leaves us uh, all kind of longing for something more, right? There must be something, uh, something greater, something more to come. So thinking back to Daniel, uh, the 70 years have finished. So the physical exile uh, is done, but the 77s until the Messiah arrives have only really just started. And so the spiritual exile uh, continues. And so I think as we read these two books, uh, I think it's helpful to read with a kind of eschatological expectancy. Eschatological expectancy. Uh, I didn't put that on your handout. I just I found it later after I came out with the handout. But um, eschatological expectancy. So what's happening at this period in history is monumental uh, in the grand scope of Israel, but it's really just the beginning of the restoration God has promised for his people. So there's a kind of looking forward uh, that the people have, even as they're celebrating God's faithfulness to them in the present. A kind of looking forward uh, to what uh, those promises, or when those promises are fulfilled, even though 
Um, there's a, a celebration of sorts of God's faithfulness in the present. So Ezra, uh, Ezra's kind of like a, a second Moses. Um, and just like Moses, he's led God's people into the promised land. Um, but like the first Moses, he hasn't produced and he cannot produce a change uh, of heart uh, in the people. Um, we're going to need a better Moses for that, that kind of work to happen. And that, that work awaits a future day. Um, so let's walk through Ezra Nehemiah. And I'm just going to point out some of the texts uh, that most clearly demonstrate some of these key themes. Uh, and then I'm going to try to orient you to the chronology um, of all that's going on along the way. Uh, so point A there, God sovereignly initiates and the people respond. Uh, this is what really what we see, I think, throughout the whole book, but real most acutely uh, in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Uh, and what's important to notice about the beginning uh, of the book is its focus on God's faithfulness to his promises. So look back in, uh, in verse 1. Uh, chapter 1 of verse 1, what, uh, who's the prophet that gets referred to there uh, that uh, Ezra is saying these words are fulfilled of? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Right, so Jeremiah. Um, in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would only last 70 years, and then just as promised, 70 years later, God moved in Cyrus's heart uh, to allow the Jews to return home. Uh, and that would have been um, prophesied by Isaiah. That's what he said would have happened in Isaiah 44, 28. So Isaiah 44, 28 and Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 1. Isaiah 45, 1. Both of those um, refer to uh, God moving in Cyrus's heart uh, to allow the people to return. Um, so we see that God is sovereignly moving behind the scenes uh, in the heart of Cyrus. Uh, as this Persian pagan king uh, to, to orchestrate and organize this entire endeavor. Uh, we also see in Ezra 1.5 that God moved the hearts of the people to go as well. Um, so look at Ezra 1.5. So it's not just Cyrus's heart, but it's the people's heart as well that the Lord is moving it. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Um, so God, again, we're seeing that God's entirely behind uh, this restoration project. And this was part of his um, sovereign plan uh, all along. God's the one leading. God's the one planning. God's the one executing. He's the one orchestrating uh, the whole thing. Then uh, Ezra's going to actually, he's going to reiterate this point uh, later in chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, uh, when Cyrus gives the Jews uh, the official grant and actually supplies them with all the materials that they need uh, to go and rebuild the temple. Um, so God's, sovereign, God's sovereignly moving and working and initiating. Uh, and that's one of the, the main themes I think we're supposed to see uh, throughout the book. So a question for you guys, how, how does God's sovereignty um, and his supremacy over history, even over individual people's actions like Cyrus, as we see in this book, um, how, does that, how does that bring comfort to you? How does it inform your view of God, your view of the world? Yeah. Because um, you have those times when you have your doubts and stuff, and all you have to do is you can point to that right there. Yeah. And you read, you can read all this stuff, and he did what he said he was going to do, and you know that he's going to continue to do that. Yeah. That's good. So, and then the way he worked through Cyrus uh, to do his will. Uh, I don't, Cyrus was a heathen, I, you know. Yeah, pagan king. That's good. Other thoughts? Other ways it comforts you, informs your view of God, view of history, view of the world? Kind of like Elisha when uh, his servant was panicking because foreign forces were surrounding them 
Yeah. So you may look at these issues and, and events and things and cause concern, but it's, we can trust that behind that, the veil's pulled back. God's in control of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's obviously over the timing of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts? It's just a reminder to me that there's several places where we can look in life. We can look at ourselves, we can look at others, we can look at circumstances. But if we don't look to the God that does rule over all and trust his word, it's easy for us to worry and be anxious and troubled in our hearts. But to look to him, to trust that the circumstances, I can't interpret life through circumstances. I have to interpret life through who he is and what he does. Yeah. 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 So I hope you're seeing that, you know, when, even when we have like kind of this big theological concept, God's sovereignty, it's actually supposed to have uh, effect and application to our hearts here and now. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we're, we're, we see throughout the book of Ezra, that it's supposed to, God's sovereignty is supposed to lead to our comfort our confidence in God and his promises and his rule over history and time and people and our own, our own hearts and circumstances as well. Um, so as you're reading books like Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and seeing God move behind the scenes, that should, that should elicit comfort uh, in your own, your own heart and praise to God for uh, his sovereign rule. All right, letter, uh, letter B, second part there, the people return and re- rebuild. Um, this is really the first six chapters uh, of the book. Um, so over those six chapters, we see God begin to provide piece by piece all that the people need uh, to rebuild their community. Uh, so starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them uh, in the house of, uh, of his gods. So Cyrus gives all of these things back to the Jews, and this would have been no small thing. Uh, it probably included the golden altar, uh, the golden table, the golden lampstands, golden basins, massive bronze pillars, stands, basins so large, so big that they couldn't even be weighed, uh, as described in 1 Kings 7. Um, so this was, this was enormous wealth. And they were irreplaceable items. And God has uh, miraculously, sovereignly, again, restored them to the people uh, so that they could reinstitute proper temple worship. Uh, and then look at, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Here we're getting introduced to uh, some important people uh, in the story of Ezra and the people of Judah. And that first name there in chapter 2, verse 2, Zerubbabel, uh, is really, really important. And we're going to see his name pop up again as one of the foremen who's overseeing the construction of the temple uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 8. Um, now, what's significant about Zerubbabel is that he was the grandson uh, of King Jehoiachin, uh, who was the penultimate king of Judah uh, at the time of the first exile, uh, when Babylon... Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar and the, ba- the Babylonians had sieged the city uh, and uh, carried, uh, carried the people off into exile. So at the end of 2 Kings 32, he's the king uh, that uh, ends the, uh, that narrative. Uh, and we find his grandson, Zerubbabel, is serving as one of the, uh, serving as the governor of Judah at the time that Cyrus uh, allowed them to return. So though, though um, Zerubbabel is Judah's kind of political leader at this time, he's also Cyrus's political subject. But being the, the grandson uh, of, a, of a former king of Israel um, puts Judah or puts Zerubbabel in the direct line of who? David. David, right? It would have put him in the direct line of King David, uh, to whom God had promised in 2 Samuel to establish a throne um, that Israel's true king would rule forever, would rule from forever, and then Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew he picks up uh, this this theme 
showing how that promise uh, that God started in 2 Samuel 7 uh, culminates in the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. So if you remember Matthew's uh, genealogy that he starts his gospel with, guess whose name pops up in that, that genealogy? Zerubbabel. Yeah, we can all, Zerubbabel. Um, so it's a fun name to say, too. Um, so again, Zerubbabel, right, these names that we're seeing in these historical books are really, really important. Zerubbabel is not a name uh, that we should skip over. Uh, Matthew doesn't skip over that name. Uh, the, the, uh, the, Bible, the biblical authors are not skipping over that name. Um, the fact that this guy is the one leading God's people uh, back to the promised land means that God is still committed to his covenantal promises and that that line leading to the Messiah, leading to Jesus Christ, uh, is still, still intact. Um, so Zerubbabel, super important name. Another important significant figure uh, in the book is, uh, is also there in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, the next name that comes right after Zerubbabel, Jeshua. Um, we're also going to see his name pop up in, in chapter 3, 8, right alongside Zerubbabel's name, again, as the temple's being rebuilt. Um, and you'll notice if you skip down to two, chapter 2, verse 40, um, starts talking a little bit more about um, some of the other people involved in this, uh, this return to the land. Uh, you'll see the Levites there. And you'll notice uh, there that Zerubbabel is a Levite. Uh, and he's functioning, even in 3.8, if you flipped over there, um, he's functioning as the high priest of the people uh, of Judah, which means that along with the line of the kings, uh, with Zerubbabel, the line of priests is also being restored and preserved. So it's the priests who would have made atoning sacrifices uh, and would have led the people in, uh, into worship in the temple. And so the restoration of the priesthood uh, is critical for restoring the people to a right relationship and to right worship uh, with God. Uh, and then, of course, we know from the book of Hebrews later in the New Testament that it's this priesthood uh, that necessarily pointed forward uh, to a greater priest to come uh, because the blood of bulls and goats uh, could not take away the sins of the people. Um, so don't miss what Ezra's doing here. Don't miss how he's connecting this kingly figure of Zerubbabel uh, and this priestly figure in Jeshua and then putting them side by side in his narrative uh, to show how God is providing for his people, uh, how he's revealing his covenant commitments to the people, how he's preserving uh, the, the priestly line and the kingly line that's going to get us to Jesus. Um, uh, and how all of this is really pointing us forward toward that greater priest king to come, uh, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Zerubbabel uh, and Jeshua, those, those guys are huge in uh, the storyline here. Other things needed for worship besides priests uh, are an altar and a temple. Uh, and that's also what Ezra is going to focus on uh, in his book. So we read of their construction uh, in chapters 3 to 6. Uh, After some opposition from unfriendly neighbors, which you could read about in chapter 4, the work gets completed in around 516 B.C., uh, a little over 20 years after uh, the people's return. And with the temple complete, they finally celebrate Passover again in chapter 6, verse 22. So you can flip over there. Chapter 6, verse 22 And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So you can, again, you can hear God's sovereign uh, superintending of time and people and the hearts uh, of the people there again. Um, And it's only fitting that worship uh, would resume in the land at the temple with a Passover meal Um, after God brought the people uh, out again from under oppression by the Gentiles. So uh, very, very similar to that that first Passover meal uh, back in uh, in Exodus. But not everything is is all right with the people. So look back at chapter 3, 
chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 10, verses 13. So this scene is going to come right on the heels of the foundation of the temple uh, being reconstructed. This is what we read. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. All right, so you've got, you got two kinds of, of uh, responses. You've got joy and sorrow. So why do you think some of the people were weeping. Yeah. And what would that what would that kind of pointed to? What were the why was it nothing like it once was? Yeah, exactly. And so those, those older, uh, older Jews there, right, they're remembering their unf- unfaithfulness that would have caused, uh, caused this in the first place. So the temple meant so much, as we've already discussed. Um, but some in the midst could remember what that, the, uh, the first temple uh, had looked like. It had only been destroyed uh, 50 years earlier. Um, so they, 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 they knew what it was like. Um, and this new temple didn't come close uh, to what God's people knew before. And while there was great joy and elation at God's covenant faithfulness uh, to them, the temple was also a stark reminder of uh, their sin and its consequences. Uh, and while that was discouraging for them, it was also a sign to them that God wasn't finished. God wasn't finished with them. He still had greater things to come. Their tears testified uh, that they were still longing for and anticipating a greater fulfillment to come. Something greater than the temple uh, was to come, uh, just as Jesus would have said about himself right, in Matthew twelve sixteen. And I think their tears, that response of the people, uh, is, is reminding us, um, reminding them that something greater is to come. Um, let us see the people sin and repent. So Ezra 7 to 10 um, at the beginning of chapter 7, this story is going to take a big leap uh, forward in time. Now we're in, four, we're in 458 B.C., uh, so this is about 60 years after the temple's completed. Uh, and here Ezra is leading a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. Uh, and we learn from Ezra, we learn, a little about, uh, we learn a little about Ezra in chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. So look there. Chapter 7, 9 to 10. For on the first day of the first month, he, Ezra, began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. Again, you're hearing theme of sovereignty there. Good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Um, So... Uh, so Ezra is leading the people back uh, in a way that honors the Lord. But when Ezra arrives back in the land, he finds that many Jews have intermarried with the surrounding pagan nations, uh, a grievous sin. So we read in, in chapter 9, um, verses 1 to 3. The people, this is starting 
uh, with the quotation there. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Uh, so uh, note that reference to the holy race there. Um, literally, the word race is seed. Um, and remember God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would raise up a seed to crush the serpent's head. Uh, so Israel was the, the carrier of that seed promise. Uh, if they assimilated into pagan culture and abandoned their unique, unique relationship with the true God, they really risked losing that promise. So if Satan's not going to be able to uh, kind of kill God's people off through exile, uh, then he's going to try to corrupt them instead. And we see that corrupting uh, happening here in chapter 9. So what happens? What's Ezra's response to the people's sin? Well, in chapter 9, verses 6 to 15, we see that Ezra prays. Uh, Ezra's response is prayer. He acknowledges the people's sin, and, and then he acknowledges God's holiness. So chapter 9, um, verses 6 to 15, here's, uh, here's Ezra's prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquity, iniquities we have and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the land of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hand within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. With their abominations they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people the peoples who practice these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So note the gravity of, of Ezra's confession and how he understands rightly uh, the consequences of sin and the justice of God. Uh, you see that uh, there in the way that the prayer ends in verse 15. Um, in chapter 10, uh, the people in God's graciousness and kindness, they repent of their sin. Uh, and it's more than a mere acknowledgement of, of sin or of just feeling bad or feeling guilty. Uh, they actually take action to undo their sin uh, to, and then to restore themselves in right behavior to God. Uh, they work to re-separate themselves from the surrounding nations. So I think chapters 9 and 10 together, uh, they show us what true confession and real genuine repentance um, really look like. It's the kind of godly sorrow uh, that Paul's going to talk about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, it's what our own repentance, our own confession 
uh, before the Lord should look like. And the main lesson uh, is that while the exiles have returned and rebuilt the temple, uh, God hasn't yet completed his, his plan of salvation for the people. Uh, you hear that in Ezra's prayer, chapter 9, uh, verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. So the remnant has returned, uh, but it's only a little reviving from slavery. Uh, again, there, this is making us say, like, okay, this can't be everything. There's got to be something greater, something more uh, to come. Okay, so that's Ezra. We're going to move on to Nehemiah. Treat it like one book. Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 7. So Nehemiah, we have another reestablishing of the people back in the land. Um, So nearly 100 years after the first exiles returned, Jerusalem's walls uh, are still broken down. So remember, we were talking about the temple, talking about the reestablishment of the law in Ezra. Nehemiah is going to turn to uh, Jerusalem's walls. Uh, And because those walls are still down, uh, this means that the people, the Davidic line, Uh, The priest-led worship, all of those are still vulnerable to Israel's enemies, uh, both militarily and morally. So so when Nehemiah, a government government official uh, serving the Persians in Susa, uh, hears about this, he weeps. And just like we saw Ezra doing just a second ago, he sets himself uh, to prayer. And what's interesting about his prayer in chapter 1, which starts there in uh, verse 4, Um, is that like so many other prayers in the Bible, guess where Nehemiah starts? He starts with confession of sin. So look at verses 6 to 7. There in chapter 1. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Um, And then in verses 10, 11, if you uh, just move your eyes down a little bit, he's going to ground this request and this confession upon God's glory. Uh, So verses 10 to 11, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Uh, so, so just like so many other prayers that we've seen in the Old Testament, uh, think back to Moses's prayers, Daniel's prayers, Uh, even Ezra's prayers that we just read about. Um, The ultimate goal in prayer uh, is that God might be glorified in how he provides for his people, how he uh, fights for his people, how he gives to his people. Uh, In chapter 2, Nehemiah is going to travel to Jerusalem about a decade after Ezra would have returned. Um, And when he gets there, he leads the people to rebuild the walls of the city. So listen to Uh, You can flip over to chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Again, sovereignty. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So in chapter 3, they're going to begin the work. 
Uh, and then we see the Jews experience opposition from their neighbors. And we, just, we even heard some of that uh, kind of foreshadowing of the opposition in those verses we just read. Um, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, uh, we see uh, the Jews' enemies first mock them for undertaking such a difficult and expensive task of engineering. Uh, but when the people are faithful and steadily continue to, to make progress, uh, the pagans' mockery uh, turns to a plot to attack the builders. Uh, and then Nehemiah is going to respond by uh, arming the builders. Uh, so then the enemies try and fail uh, to undermine Nehemiah personally by slandering and attacking his own reputation. That's what we see in chapter 6 of, uh, of the book. And that, that kind of strategy just shouldn't surprise us, right? Satan uh, will sometimes try to attack God's people. Uh, he's going to especially try to tear down their leaders uh, with kind of a full frontal assault. And other times he's going to attack uh, God's people through more subtle means. But God's faithful to protect his people, to preserve them uh, regardless. So that's, that's what we're seeing through some of these middle chapters uh, of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah also experiences opposition from within Israel. So that's, that's chapter 5. Um, some of the builders begin to complain uh, that the work is too expensive, uh, given their, their modest means. So Nehemiah uh, convinces the, the nobles and officials who are overseeing the work uh, to start ch- stop charging interest of the people, uh, then, which allows the work to continue. Uh, and in the end, the people complete the wall uh, of around Jerusalem in about a year's time. Um, And this section of the text ends with the encouraging words of chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 73. So turn there. Chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. Uh, lived in their towns. So that return uh, to kind of almost what sounds like peace um, and rest sounds similar to key passages in Joshua when the Israelites first uh, would have took the land. So really, we, we truly have a kind of re-beginning here. Uh, this is a, a kind of re-restoration of the people. Um, all right, next section, Nehemiah 8 through 13. Um, this, this is really the, like the, what the whole, even Ezra and all of what we've seen so far in Nehemiah have been uh, driving to, the reestablishment of the covenant, uh, which happens in chapter 8. So look at chapter 8, verse 8. This really, if we had the time, like chapters 8, uh, chapters 9 of, of Nehemiah would be, just great for us to stop and just read for the rest of class, but we got to get through Esther too. Um, So I'd encourage you to go back and read um, all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 later today. Um, But in chapter 8, verse 8, we just get a summary statement of sorts. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Um, so there's lots that we could say about this verse and these chapters about the nature of preaching uh, and its goal. And I wish we could spend more time here. Uh, but what's important to note really in this section uh, is how the people react uh, to the reading of the law. So upon, upon hearing the law read and expounded, uh, it says in verse 6 of chapter 8, um, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the the Lord with their faces to the ground. Um, But then in verse 9, if you flip over, look over at verse 9, it says that the people again mourn and weep at the sounding, at the, the hearing of the law. So similar to that scene in Ezra, when the temple foundations are laid, um, the reading of the Mosaic law is producing, uh, again, joy and sorrow among the people. So they're realizing, again, that, that the, the law that is, uh, is being read to them now is the law that, the very law that they have broken. Um, but the priests told the people not to mourn 
um, but to celebrate at the reading of God's word. Um, it seems that the people were rightly mourning their sin again, recognizing the consequences of their sin, and then rightly celebrating God's, uh, God's faithfulness to them and God's covenants, commitments to them, uh, even in the very law that they had broken. Um, so I think that, again, um, is just reiterating kind of the emotional reaction that we ought to have at God's word. Um, it ought to, um, the reading and the teaching of God's word uh, ought to cause grief over our sin, and it ought to, uh, it ought to bring joy and delight uh, and confidence uh, that a holy God would give his own life, his own son even, uh, to make us holy. Um, so I think that's just a good diagnostic question for us to, uh, to think about as we sit under the preaching of the word here in just a few minutes. Um, does, that, does the word that's being read and taught over us, uh, does it cause you to grieve the weight of your sin? Uh, does it, does it r- lift your hearts in joy at the Savior that's been provided for us? Um, I hope that uh, we are all growing in those kinds of emotional reactions and responses to the word. Um, the long rebuilding renewal process, uh, it, it's complete when the people bind themselves again to covenant with God. So flip over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives and their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, our Lord, uh, and his rules and his statutes. So think back to all, that the, uh, all that's happened so far in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the people are in the land. The Davidic uh, line lives on, uh, and therefore so does the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15. Priests are again making sacrifices on the altar. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls um, of Jerusalem are now up and secure. The law is being publicly read uh, and explained to the people. And now the people are formally renewing their commitment uh, to, uh, to God's covenant. So this is what we've all been waiting for, right? This is, this is great news. Everything's going to be hunky-dory now between the people and God, right? No, right? Sadly, no. This is going to be a big, big letdown uh, for us as readers and for, uh, for the Jews. So no, people, no, no sooner do the people renew this covenant with this wonderful language in chapter 10 than they break it again. So in chapter 13, we see them just three chapters later violating the Sabbath. And then once again... They intermarry with the surrounding nations. And so once again, we see the same problem cropping up. The law isn't yet written on our hearts. This isn't the full arrival of the kingdom of God. This isn't the new covenant with new hearts. Uh, This isn't in the new heavens and the new earth. Sin and death still reign. We're here at the end of uh, the Old Testament's historical record, and the heart of the people is still... Uh, deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, right? Who, it's beyond cure. Who, who can understand it? And so again, we're left looking forward to a greater salvation, something greater than the exodus, uh, something greater than the return from exile uh, must be coming, coming, a greater kingdom, greater than David's, greater than Solomon's, even greater than uh, this one uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Something greater, someone greater still awaits. Okay, so that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Any questions on Ezra and Nehemiah comments um, before, we, before we motor through the book of Esther? Which is also, these books are just so good. Any questions, comments on Ezra and Nehemiah? All right, we're going to move on to Esther. So Esther, next, 
It should be the next, next, just turn your page from Nehemiah 13, that's Esther. Uh, so we're in the same time, uh, just a different place now. So it's now in the, the 480s, 470s BC range, uh, half a century after the return of the first wave, but before Ezra's return. Uh, but we're in Susa, Persia's, Persia's capital, uh, where some Jews still are in exile. Um, and the book of Esther isn't like other books in the Old Testament because it contains no references to God. Uh, so anyone know how many times God's name gets mentioned in the book of Esther? Zero, right? It's a fun quiz question. Uh, so no mention of the name of God anywhere in, uh, in the book. And apart from some fasting, uh, so chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 16, there really aren't even any religious references at all in the book. So what contribution does it make to God's unfolding plan of redemption? If his name doesn't even get mentioned, uh, there's no real religious references, um, what, is, what are we supposed to take away from this book? Well, uh, the story illustrates through narrative, uh, through this story, the truth that God cares for his people, uh, that he will rescue his people uh, from his enemies, and that God's people can ultimately, at the end of the day, rest assured that God will protect them even when we can't see how he's working. So in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're seeing kind of Ezra and Nehemiah are explicit about how God is working. Uh, Esther, it's kind of more, it's more behind the scenes, way more subtle. Um, that's the basic theme and message of the book. Even though God's name is absent from the book, uh, his hand and his presence are not. His hand and his presence are everywhere. Uh, his people prove unable to save themselves time and time and time again in the book, and yet behind the scenes, God is working all the time toward their deliverance. So in a world where we can't always see what God is doing behind the scenes, um, the faithful, we can often wonder whether or not God is really at work, whether he's there, whether he is moving, whether his hand and his, his presence are there. But it's, in re it's important to remember that God's acts of providence in the world are most commonly done with a hidden hand, right? With a hidden hand. His work uh, can be so easily overlooked. And sometimes it's that subtlety of his actions that make his deliverance all the more powerful, right? His hand uh, is moving even when we can't see it. And that's, that's the drumbeat of the book of Esther. Uh, so let me just summarize the story for you. Um, in the first two chapters, a young Jewish girl named Esther uh, rises to power in King Xerxes' favor, uh, such that he ends up making her his queen. And her cousin Mordecai overhears a plot to kill Xerxes. Uh, and so he informs Esther of this, and Esther alerts the king, and the plot is stopped. Uh, then in chapter 3, the Jews face another crisis. Uh, a man named Haman is promoted in the king's court, and he's offended when Mordecai uh, won't pay homage to him. And to exact his revenge, uh, Haman uh, doesn't go after Mordecai alone, but he seeks a decree to have all the Jews in Persia uh, exterminated. Uh, and Mordecai persuades Esther again to help. She petitions the king to spare the Jews, uh, and he takes action uh, on, on their behalf to preserve them. Uh, meanwhile, the king uh, then unwittingly humiliates Haman uh, by forcing him to publicly honor Mordecai, um, reversal there, uh, and then when he, Haman's plot is stopped, he's executed. Uh, so lots of, lots of reversals in this story. Uh, in many ways, it's just it's a wonderful uh, telling uh, and narrative. Uh, the author just is crafting a great a great story. Um, and that's the story. So let's, let's just touch on a few important themes um, in the book. Number one, God will judge. Very simply, this is one thing that we see in the book. God, God will judge. He's going to bring judgment on the wicked. So the villain in this story is, is clearly Haman. Uh, he's guilty of pride, arrogance, attempted murder, attempted genocide, uh, and worst of all, he's directed all of this directly and specifically against 
God's people, uh, which is another way of saying that he's directed all of his sin specifically and directly against God himself. Um, so his evil is, is not random or merely selfish. Uh, it's willful and intentional, and he's directed it against the people and the purposes of God. So uh, many ways in the book, Haman just represents uh, the enemies of God uh, at large. But we see in the story that in God's providence, all of Haman's plans backfire on him. One after another after another, every plan backfires. Haman wants to humiliate Mordecai, but the king forces Mordecai uh, to honor Mordecai publicly. Haman wants to murder uh, Mordecai but, uh, by impaling him on a pole, but the king executes Haman by impaling him on that very same pole. Uh, Haman wants to eliminate the Jews in a mass empire-wide genocide. Instead, God uses the occasion to allow the Jews to not only defend themselves, but then even to triumph over their enemies. So look at chapter 9, verse 2. <clears throat> The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. So God, God does judge the wicked, sometimes even in this life. And that's what we see uh, there in verse 2. And so we should, have, we should have some peace about the trials and the opposition uh, that we face in this life, confident that God is going to bring about justice. Uh, and even when he doesn't bring about uh, justice and judge the wicked in this life as quickly or as swiftly as we uh, might hope and pray for, we can be confident that one day uh, justice and judgment will be rendered. So even this uh, immediate earthly justice that gets done is pointing us forward to uh, eternal justice that will one day take place. God will protect and preserve his people, um, whether in this life or in death, and his people will triumph over those who oppose them. Uh, and Esther, Esther's reminding us of that. Esther's giving us a, a foretaste and a picture of that. Um, so that's the first theme, God will judge. Second theme, God works through circumstances. Uh, this is one of the things we were talking about earlier in class, uh, when we were talking about God's sovereignty. Um, so in chapter 4, uh, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, if you flip there, uh, Mordecai persuades Esther to rescue her people from, this, uh, from a sentence of death. And he says, Esther, Mordecai says this to Esther, Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether or not God has given you this role, this time, this place, and this circumstance to save his people? Um, Mordecai believes that there's a purpose to Esther's, Esther becoming queen, uh, that it just wasn't random or, or uh, a coincidence, and that her purpose is made clear by the opportunity uh, that God, that's been presented to her to preserve God's people. Um, so here we're seeing that God uses earthly instruments like, like people's actions, like our actions, to accomplish his plans. Uh, in fact, as you look across the pages of Scripture, uh, really you'll notice just how rare it is that God's miracles take the form of uh, the erupt dis uh, abrupt disruption of history that you might see like in the Exodus. That's actually kind of abnormal for how God works in history. Uh, rather, he, he's using people, situations, events, all quite naturally, very inconspicuously towards the end uh, that he intends. So God's, God's in the business of using very ordinary means and measures for his extraordinary purposes. Uh, and Mordecai is telling Esther that she should understand herself and her rise to power uh, to be the instrument by which God accomplishes his purposes. Um, of course, God does not need any particular person or circumstance to achieve his purposes, but he's ordained sovereignly uh, to use people like Esther, to use ordinary people like you and me uh, to spread his word, to redeem his people. Um, it could be you, Mordecai is saying to Esther. You, you could be that instrument of God. Um, so again, he's not seeing that there's any accident, any coincidence in her 
uh, her position, her circumstances. God guides all and directs all of his creation and that he means that means that he's guiding the circumstances of our life as well. Um, so we should carefully examine uh, the situation, the places, uh, the people, uh, the, uh, the positions that God puts us in and around uh, and look for opportunities to serve him uh, in those moments. Who knows what God is going to do with our just ordinary moments of, uh, and little acts of faithfulness. So that's, that's the second theme. Uh, third theme, third theme, God will save his people. Um, this is really the theological point of the whole book. Uh, God zealously protects his people. Uh, this is one major theme of the entire Bible, uh, but it's clearly the point of the little story of Esther. Time and time and time again, the people are preserved. And it's not always clear at the time how God's going to work these things out uh, and how it's going to turn out in the end for them, but God delivers his people and he's carrying his redemptive plan forward in the story. Uh, and note that the way God achieved Israel's deliverance in this situation, uh, it really maximized his own glory uh, and pretty much prevented Mordecai and Esther from, uh, from taking credit or boasting about anything in themselves. Uh, it's all, it's, uh, the drumbeat is God's glory. God's the one acting. He's the one doing this. His hand is moving, even though we don't even hear his name in the book. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's just good to remember that God's purposes and salvation in this book, in Esther, are even deeper and more meaningful uh, than the events on the surface might suggest. So uh, if you remember all the way back to the kingship of Saul, anybody remember why his, what, what was it that caused his kingship to fail? Saul's? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he, remember, he was commanded uh, to totally destroy the Amalekites uh, and their king Agag. So 1 Samuel 15. Well, we find out, uh, and Saul fails to do that. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't totally wipe them out. Well, we find in chapter 2, verse 5 of Esther, that Mordecai is actually a distant, uh, a distant descendant of King Saul. And then in 924... Haman is a distant descendant of King Agag. So again, you've kind of got like Saul versus Agag uh, playing out in Esther. And in God's kindness, his rescue of his people results in the redemption for the line of Saul through Mordecai uh, centuries after he disobeyed the command. So certainly, right, no... No accident, no coincidence there uh, that these genealogical details are brought to light in this book. Again, we're seeing that these genealogies, these names uh, in the Bible are critical to how we read this story. Um, all of it is just showing, again, how, how minutiae and the minutiae of the Bible, it's all interconnected. And God's purposes are connected throughout history. Uh, so it's, it's just really astounding, even those little details like that. I think maybe we should even just do a whole equipping class on genealogies one day. That would be, be f super fun, at least for me. Um, but yeah, just don't skip over these little, uh, these little phrases. Um, so what are, we, what are we supposed to take away from these three books? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we need to trust that God's at work even when we can't see it. Uh, that's, that's really... Uh, so much of what we've seen in these three books. Our job, like Queen Esther's job, uh, and the people and the land uh, is to be faithful with the opportunities that God's putting in front of us, with the opportunities that we can see. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we're dependent on God to secure that obedience uh, as we see the failure of the people throughout, uh, throughout Nehemiah uh, and that failure uh, of the people, and even our own failure, is meant to point us forward to God's greater, greater provision for us in Christ. All right, any questions or final comments?
before I pray. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just, it's an act of, what, what, ex- uh, what passage exactly are you referring to, Kathleen? Yeah, chapter, chapter 10, those guilty of intermarriage confess their sin. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, they're supposed to, it's, they're, they're called to be just put away uh, their sin. And I think that's part of like the act of repentance that we're seeing, is that it's just not this, you know, feeling bad or guilty over their sin, but it does require them to take some, some massive steps uh, to correct that behavior. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I know the Old Testament law would have provided, made those provisions for Israelites. Um, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head for foreign wives or children. Anybody else think know of anything? It's a good question. Yeah. yeah. All right, let me pray for us, guys. Father, we praise you for your word. Uh, we thank you for all that it uh, all that it creates in us, uh, the emotions it stirs, uh, the ways it's all con- interconnected. Father, we pray as we go sit under your word now in our corporate worship gathering uh, that your word would cause us to grieve rightly over our sin against you uh, and yet at the same time cause us to be filled with joy uh, at the, uh, the Messiah that you have promised to us and fulfilled for us in Christ, uh, the Lamb who takes away our sin and restores us fully and completely into relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.